During times in this episode, there is sensitive content that may be traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion advised. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. I'm Jennifer Diane Ghostin, your host. Storytelling is just one of the best ways for adoptees to convey what has happened in their life from their perspective and a great way to open up to the adoption community. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation, validation even, that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and or managing past traumatic events. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My guest today is a 29-year-old transracial adoptee from upstate New York who currently lives in Memphis, Tennessee. We met at an event here in Nashville last June when Angela Tucker, the author of You Should Be Grateful, was on her book tour. Her name is Alicia. We spent a wonderful afternoon together that neither of us will soon forget because the fellowship was quite meaningful for several hours. In this episode, Alicia will share a part of her relinquishment being in foster care as an infant and open adoption journey. She has recently begun her career as a school-based occupational therapist. During her free time, she enjoys reading, visiting bookstores, playing video games, watching movies, sharing food, and laughter with her friends and traveling with her boyfriend. We truly have a lot of that in common. Allow me to introduce you to a young, vibrant, intelligent, insightful, and beautiful young woman of color. She has started her enthusiastic connection to the adoption community as recent as 2020. I love her energy and passion to get to know other adoptees like Dr. Sib, Patrice, and myself here in Music City. We might be a whole generation older than Alicia, but it doesn't interfere one bit with us being able to effortlessly bond with her. Well, hello, Alicia. I know you're like three hours from me in Tennessee, Memphis. How are you doing? I'm doing very well today. It's a beautiful day here in Memphis. How are you? I'm doing well, and in Nashville is sunny as well. Mm-hmm. So I know we met in June of this year at a, an extraordinary event, which was Angela Tucker's book signing. She published her memoir, You Should Be Grateful, and that's where I would first see you in person. So tell me what that experience was like to be at Angela's event. It was so amazing. It really definitely is a memory I'm going to hold dear to for a long time. I knew Angela from attending her adoptee lounges. I'd say around in 2020, I came across her story 
through the Red Table Talk, which is a you know the show with Jada Pinkett Smith and um, her daughter and her mother. And Angela was a guest on their show. And it was the first time for me to hear the story of a, well, first, the first time I heard the term transracial adoptee, and also hearing the story of a black woman who grew up in a white family. I kind of, you know, I looked her up and found out she had adoptee lounges and attended quite a few for the last couple of years. When I find out she was writing her book and also doing the um, talk at the porch, you know, out in Nashville, I was like, I just, I can't not meet her. How do you not <laughs> meet this incredible woman, you know, who's just changing so many lives? Um, Angela, I, I, I'm not sure if I even told her this, but she has changed my life for the better and is the reason that, you know, that. I have been able to kind of be an even closer reunion with my biological family and have open conversations with my parents about, well, at least sharing more resources about the adoptee experience. You know, if it wasn't for her and what she's provided for me to go on this journey, you know, I don't think I'd be where I am today in my relationships. So it was just life-changing and she's so sweet. She I mean, is. I knew that she's like a sweet person. She's so sweet and bubbly and just so happy. She really, <laughs> and I love really, that energy. Really is. I would agree. I had the opportunity, to, like the extraordinary opportunity, to hang out with her hours before the event. So we were together at another adoptee's house who hosted a wonderful brunch for us. And then, right. and just sat around just talking and just a laid back environment. And then we headed off to do a tour. So I want to shout out to Patrice, who is an adoptee yeah. here in Nashville that hosted Angela. And I want to shout out to Dr. Sip, who joined us and was our tour guide. She's lived in Nashville much longer than I have. And so I learned so much on this, this mini tour of this music city. Angela was just such a joy, like the whole time. It was just wonderful. And then off to the book event, and then we all went to dinner. Wasn't that cool? After the book event. Oh, my gosh. That was an amazing time, right? We went to this incredibly fancy restaurant, right? I love that we had a round table. That yeah. made me so happy, you know, just to have that just communion with each other. You know, that's where I was able to meet Dr. Sid and Patrice as well. Everyone just was nice. And I think someone mentioned this was just to be able to sit around and just have conversations about whatever, not just like our stories as adoptees, but just be in the presence of each other, you know, without judgment, without fear of not fitting in or, you know, wanting to, having to change ourselves in any way. We were just there as we were and accepting each other. It was so beautiful. It was. It was just this total sense of belonging. And there's just Absolutely. something special about in person. And this wasn't a conference, right? This wasn't mm -hmm. a support group, like many of the valuable resources in our community. This was like just being with other adoptees in a real casual setting. I felt like the book signing was so informative. That was really nice sitting outside listening to Angela speak yeah. about her experience in, in, in the book. And 
Yeah, it was just a lovely, lovely day. So I'm so glad I met you there. I'm so glad you said yes to a conversation because I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you've publicly shared your story, a part of your story before. I have not, Jennifer, ever. I mean, other than in the adoptee lounges, and I consider myself a pretty open person. You know, um, if people ask, you know, I will answer. I'll give them as much information as I'm comfortable with, you know, but I've never, this is my first podcast ever. Well, I truly want to thank you for trusting me. And, you know, I'm deeply honored. I know you're 29 years old and that's very young. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) yeah, I, yeah, just thank you for being a part of my podcast because I think it's so important for other adoptees that are your age, for example, that are transracial, interracial, to hear from from you. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess we can just jump right in and you can start from wherever you like. Yes, I feel like my story is a bit unique in that, you know, how I kind of ended up with my adoptive family. So I was in foster care as early as I can remember. And mind you, a lot of this information is information I was told, right? I don't remember a lot of this myself. But I was in foster care from at least the age of one, if not earlier, with my siblings. We were separated. And at this point, I believe I was with siblings from my maternal side, from my mother's side, right? And when I was in a foster care home, At around two years of age, there was an incident where my brother tried to give me a bath and I was burned by the hot water in the bathtub because it was just the water heater was unregulated or something like that. And so I ended up in a children's hospital, obviously removed from that foster care home because it was not safe. We were home alone at that time when that incident occurred. My adoptive mother, who at this point um, was a foster mother, she fostered many, many children before I came along. And she got a phone call about me and came out to Boston from Syracuse, New York, and visited me, she tells me multiple times, you know, to figure out if she was, would be able to care for me because it's, a big medical task, you know, to care for a child with third degree burns. I had burns from my waist down and, you know, scar tissue on the rest of my body from the skin grass. And, you know, it's a really intensive care. And she, you know, took on that responsibility and took me home and cared for me. And I ended up staying with that family and was adopted at the age of five years old. And I also have a sister who was adopted at five in that same household as well. And so she's the one that I grew up with in that house. Um, So I had a mother and a father, Frank and Karen Ann. You know, it was a fun house. You know, my mom, she loved to stay busy. (laughs) She she never let us really sit still for too long. You know, we live in an environment and, and I think it has to do with their upbringing too. Like you kids have to play outside, you know, you, get your hands dirty, you do crafts, and we went to summer camps, and, you know, I'm I'm happy to say I think I had a pretty 
other than all the surgeries that I had to go through extensively sprinkled throughout my childhood. Otherwise, my mother made sure I had as normal a childhood as possible, just filled with fun and, and, and experiences and things like that. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, if not like 99% white. I grew up in the church community as well. I think really, you know, it, it makes you have this very interesting outlook, right? Especially as the only person of color for miles, right? So a lot of my friends are white, my closest friends, the community around me, you know, I didn't have any of those racial mirrors unless I was at summer camp, you know, which is only like what a week or two at a time throughout the summer. But yeah, that was challenging growing up and we can get more into that, you know, later, but it was challenging not seeing people who looked like me. Right. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I, I've been in reunion. So I've been in reunion with my biological family since I was a child. So we all, my siblings and I, and even my parent, my biological parents, we're all within like a five, 10 mile radius of each other most of my life. And how often, a little... oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, how often would you be in contact with your biological family growing up? Because obviously they're black, so that mm -hmm. would be some mirroring, right? True, but it wasn't very often. And so, I mean, and, you know, these time frames are a little blurry for me. But when I was in foster care, you know, I remember even before being adopted and then shortly after being adopted. And I want to say up until maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, at least every month, if not every few months, our caseworkers would get together um, would have us all get together on my mom's side. So I would meet up with my siblings. My parents would sometimes show up. Unfortunately, my mother, you know, had a very traumatic past and it led to some unhealthy decisions and things. So it wasn't always safe for her to be around us kids. And my father, you know, I'm learning more and more with conversation with him. He was so young, and I'm not sure he knew how to be a father, you know, around us, even though he definitely longed for it. So he wasn't really in the picture that often either. But yeah, I'd say to answer your question, like every about every month or so, but it wasn't, you know, for my whole life. It was just in my early childhood. And even getting together with them, it was awkward, you know. We were only together for maybe an hour and I remember this one time, my mom had all of my siblings, and I keep saying on my mother's side, because at this point in time, I did not know my siblings on my father's side. So these are all my half-siblings and a couple, you know, full siblings on my mother's side, but we had them up to the house, in our house, in, in New York, and I remember that day, like, so vividly, because it was just so natural. You know, because before we'd, we'd have to meet in this building and Catholic charities and a stale room, you know, with like no toys and a TV that had like five channels, you know what I mean? So it, it was hard to really find a way to connect with my siblings. Whereas at my parents' house, you know, we had all these fun things to do. They were amazed that we lived in this 
house with a big yard and just bringing them into my world and showing them like, Hey, like I'm comfortable and you're welcome here. You know, but again, we were kids, we were really young. And so we didn't, this was before cell phones, you know, we were really a big thing and they were still being moved around. So we didn't really stay in touch. So although that was a chance for racial mirrors, it wasn't consistent. Right. Um, we weren't necessarily close and we didn't really understand at that point how to be close because we only were seen together when they, when the case managers allowed it. You right. Know? Yeah. And an hour is not long at all. No, yeah, no. Except not... for one day at the house, which was like all day, which was, you know, so fun. Otherwise, yeah, I, it was a very short time. And I remember crying and being upset when we had to leave, but like not fully understanding like why I didn't really feel connected to these people who look like me. You know, I longed to be in the room with them longer, but when I was, I didn't exactly know what to say, you know, or how to be a sister, you know, to these people. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And you know, what's coming up for me now is many adoptees talk about the lack of mirroring when they were in families that had the same ethnicity, like I'm a same race mm. domestic adoptee. And so I fit in, I looked like mm-hmm. nobody would question, are you adopted? At right. the same time, I didn't have the mirroring of, of my biological family, from right. the whole DNA piece. So now I'm listening to you and other transracial interracial adoptees not only did you not have the mirroring of your genetic from, mm-hmm. you know, from your, your biological family, but you didn't have it even as a black person, right? right. Yeah, I just, I'm just connecting the dots, sadly enough, uh, that that's like another layer, actually. It was. And I mean, what comes up for me with that is I did, I mentioned I, I attended summer camps, you know, all through my childhood, Girl Scout camp, burn camp. I was so blessed to attend a camp for other burn survivors who were people my age and church camp, you know, everything in between. And those places I did meet other black children. And maybe you can relate to this is I never fully felt like I fit in with them just because of the way I talk and my experiences and the music that I liked and, you know, the hobbies that I had, they were just not, the same as the children who, you know, had grown up in a hundred percent black culture. Um, So although I had some friends, it, it just didn't feel the same. I I, didn't feel completely accepted. I can relate to that. And, And I always often put it like all black people aren't the same. So there would be circles mm-hmm. I would go in and they would say, oh, you talk funny uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> or <laughs> or uh, you like that kind of music. Yeah. Like you're saying, other black people have said that to me uh, growing up. And so, yeah, I can relate to that. And, you know, I'm curious. You said Catholic charities. I'm curious about whether they said to your adoptive parents it's not necessary that she be around Black people, or maybe they didn't say anything at all, because I I just don't understand white adoptive parents or any parents 
who are not black that adopt a black child, not knowing that the exposure to the black community is going to be imperative, particularly when they reach adulthood and go out into the world as a black person. Mm -hmm. Oof, yeah, and that's, that was, you know, that was definitely an experience, a transition. And I will say, I think my mother especially really tried, and that's why she had me go to all these camps and summer activities, you know, because she was hoping that I'd meet other children, you know, who looked like me. And we lived in a very white town, but we were 10 minutes from an area in Syracuse, New York, that had, you know, a black community. And so she would take me, you know, to a hairstylist. You know, I remember growing up, I had my hair done by black hairstylists. You know, she, she sought that out for me. But I think it was challenging to for her not only to make friends who are in that community, right? Because I think for my, my parents are older. So I believe they adopted me when they were like in their 50s, if I'm doing the math correctly. So they were already in their 50s at that time. And so I, I know from talking with my mom, especially that it was challenging for her to meet people her age, you know, right. that had children my age, right? That's very difficult to do. And she didn't connect always with these younger people who are in their 30s and 40s with kids my age. I'm and glad especially you shared a, that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, because that is another, that, that was a barrier for her to like get me into that community. Mm-hmm. But also I imagine, you know, she she grew up in a small completely white town and had a completely different background. It's hard to infiltrate into a culture you are unfamiliar with, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not trying to make excuses for it or anything, but I imagine that it was challenging for her to that, do that successfully. That's a, that's a really good point. You have, you have the, the different racial identity and then you have the age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because my parents were old enough to be, my adoptive parents were old enough to be my grandparents. So my friends, their parents being younger, I really didn't see my parents like engaging with with them too much because of the the age difference. Yeah. Right. Same here. And um, it was even growing up, like in high school and stuff, my friends, parents, even the parenting styles were completely different, you know? Absolutely. The they had with their, yeah, we talked about this, right? Like the relationships they have with their parents and the expectations they put on us as their children, and especially as a Black child, it just looks very different than how my friends would. You know, I would never talk back to my parents. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. not <laughs> no. And some of my <laughs> friends would call their parents by their first name. And that oh, was like, my goodness. <laughs> it's like, Ooh, no way. I would hide. Like, oh, she just called her. Oh, my God. If I try, I only do that if I'm lost in Walmart, right? Like, that's the only time I'm calling out your first name. I know. Yeah, because <laughs> generations do things differently. Yeah, they definitely mm-hmm. do. Each generation. So, yeah, I'm glad you shared that. That's a really good point. And would you say that, well, well, what are your thoughts about open adoptions? Would you say that your adoption was considered open? I believe so. 
Yeah, because when they could, my mother or my biological father would also join us. I remember running into my father all the time in town because he lives down the hill, basically, from us. And so they, we were aware of each other's presence all the time. And I think that's really healthy in a way for me because that doesn't mean I didn't wonder. I didn't have a lot of, I had a lot of questions, right? And um, it did bring up a lot of sadness because I was always from childhood aware that I couldn't be with my family. And I didn't fully understand why when I was seeing them so often. Like, they're right here. They're alive, you know? My father is healthy. My siblings are good. Like, why can't I be with them, you know? Right. Um, where are they when I'm when I'm out here in, in this little town and I miss them and I'm thinking of them, but I don't know what they're doing. And it's weird that we're just scheduled times to see each other. You know, I always wonder with closed adoptions, who is that helping? Like, who is that protecting? Mm. Yeah, and I think closed adoptions, which is kind of the the dark side of it, is it is very much uh, secretive. There's so many secrets, and and to me, mm. the the secrets are related to shame. Like, there's Yes. Like like we're keeping secrets because we, we're ashamed of something. And, and that, to me, is the dark side of closed adoptions. And I know very little about open adoptions. I have talked with other adoptees in your generation who experience open adoptions. And yeah, it's a mixed bag there, too. Uh, like you say, you're right. seeing your biological family and wondering, well, why can't I be with them? And it's interesting, you know, bringing up shame, my biological mother, you know, she was, and I'm proud to say it, like, was past tense. Um, she was an alcoholic. She was a drug addict. She was not, you know, meant, she was, you know, in a very negative mental state of mind. So, it, unfortunately, it was not a safe environment for us children. You know, we weren't just removed just for the sake of her not being able to take care of us. There was actual, you know, a safety concern there with our, with our home. The narrative of that, you know, of having a mother who was unfit, you know, quote unquote, to care for us, there is some shame in that, right? Like that was always brought up. And especially my mother, my adoptive mother sharing that with people. And, you know, that brings up a whole other thing of like my story being my narrative of my story being told a certain way. And it always started with like, you know, my mother was a drug addict or, you know, and it's that can bring up shame on my part. Like, yeah, my mom is not a good person. Right. That's what I believed growing up like yeah I she doesn't love me she doesn't care for me she would rather drink than you know care for me or be a part of my life getting to know her and know her story and also just becoming I'm in, in the healthcare field myself and so just learning so much about trauma physical trauma you know social and mental health and all the things that go along with that I've I don't want to say I've forgiven her. Like, that's not the right word. I'd never, there was nothing to forgive. It's just like more of an acceptance. And it's, there's so many layers to that, right? Jennifer, like, 
just and in terms of social justice and things, like if she, I always wonder if my mother had gotten the help that she needed and the support. And my father talks about things that he was doing when we were in the process of becoming adopted that I had no idea. And I had also assumed and was ashamed that this man didn't want to father us properly. Right. I just, there was so many assumptions and talking about my story to people. They just assume my biological family were not good people. Right. And so I'm with these, this white family who's like perfect, you know, you have a house, you must, you must be so grateful. <laughs> right. Um, so that leads me into a question I, I wanted to ask you about saviorism and that narrative of adoptive parents saving a child through adoption. How do you feel about, about that conversation? I think it's tough because I think it's very dismissive of the child's experience of adoption. Mm. I was listening to one of your past episodes and it was, um, you're talking about the trauma that comes with that. And someone admitted like they were very all for adoption. You know, adoption is great. It's the solution to everything. There's nothing bad about it. And it's just very ignorant of the fact that adoption is a traumatic experience and that the child is taken from their family whether we remember who they what they look like or or not it is inherently like a genetic thing for us to want to be near our people right and we feel that and you know usually it's some sort of identity crisis later on right but i think that the racism that's so deeply rooted in adoption um, and the history that goes along with adoption has led to that idea of like, you know, white people have been put on this pedestal of the ideal family that children of color should be in because parents, black parents and other parents who are from, you know, low income and like poverty and things are just, it's that narrative that they're unfit mm-hmm. to be parents. The minute that they fail, the smallest little failure they're not good parents. And you just don't hear about that in white communities. It's all behind closed doors kind of thing. I really think that's unfair. Uh, You know, unfortunately, that narrative was projected onto me most of my life. I remember being on news channels with my sister Tiffany, with people interviewing my mother, since she was a foster mother, just well known in our little community. And we would all, you know, we'd be on the swing or some like set up scene and just smiling and talking, answering these like super loaded questions about how we must be so happy, you know, with this family. Like, aren't you glad you, you know, these people adopted you? And you're just like, nod and smile. Yeah, like totally. Right. When inside you're like, yeah, but like, right. Like, don't you want to know who my family is? Like, there's no questions about, where I come from, there's no questions about being a black child here. Like, there's no mention of race. You know, there's the whole we don't see color thing. And it's just very dismissive of your background, your culture, and your past. Yeah. Um, and I think I that's that why. The question. Oh, it did. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's why I think it's so important when we talk about adoption that we say relinquishment and adoption. You know, it was Sunderland that 
hit it on the, the nail on the head because if we just say adoption, it suggests that something didn't happen to cause the adoption. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's mm-hmm. dismissive of the total picture. And and so, yeah, you definitely answered my question. And I think, I, I just hope, that's what I hope, that adoptive parents understand that the, the whole subject of saviorism is actually heartbreaking for the adoptee because we have biological parents, uh, whatever the situation mm-hmm. is, and to suggest that they saved us, saved us from them. Like, what, what, right. <laughs> where is that conversation right. really going to go? Because they are our biological family, our tribe, you know. Right. Um, and everybody's family, like, no family is perfect, right? right? And right. not every family is safer than another family. Right. There are many people who are adopted into unsafe environments, I, I, you know, and that's 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 the thing with this white saviorism is, and people don't question those experiences. They dismiss it so quickly, like, oh no no, these people adopted you. They gave you something that you would not have gotten with your biological family. So you you have to be grateful. There is no other. There is no room for questions or you know for doubt. There, they don't give us the space for that kind of thinking. I'm grateful to have found a space like the adoptee lounges and this conversation with you to be able to say these things and have those questions and be very open about it and not be judged for it. Yes. And before I ask you this next question, I just want to go back to something you said uh, regarding when you were asked by the media, aren't you grateful? Aren't you like happy that you were adopted and you responded yes and in your inside you're thinking but I have a family out there right I'm thinking of something Dr. Sip said and that is this it can be both and yeah it can be both and and yeah I'm glad you shared that well it brings up for me I just want to mention is being you know, getting closer to my biological parents, my biological family, and just seeing myself and them and feeling this love, this unconditional love, which I grew up thinking did not exist. My father's side are successful people with like totally normal lives. And it hurts to see that. It makes me kind of spiral down this whole like what if you know and why not why didn't you you know put me with these people and um you know I've just been told they didn't want to especially with my medical condition with my burns and it's very intensive care especially with people in reunion with these and they find their family and you find out they're like totally they're well off they're they're comfortable they're kind and it, and just to see that, it kind of just, it's a little crushing because we grew up our whole life saying we were saved. However, it's like you see, you meet these people, you meet your biological family, and you're like, saved from what? Yes. You know? that what was, was I saved from? That was well said. I love when you say, what if, why not? Yeah, that was, that was good. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about 
being better connected to the community. And what has been rewarding about that or meaningful about that? Like when, because this is kind of recent, we're talking like 2020 when you saw the, the Red Table talk with Angela Tucker. How's that been for you? It has been, hmm, this is such a great question. It's been a journey, um, a bit of a roller coaster, but in a, in a good way. I never been, I've never been able to have these conversations. I didn't even know how I was feeling. There was no words to explain. And so there's so much terminology that I'm still learning that defines my experience and my feelings that I can never really quite pinpoint growing up. Those experiences being othered, you know, in front of my friends and the experience of kind of coming out of the fog, right? And and things like that. I just, I've never been more grateful to be able to talk about these things and share my story in a space where I immediately belong. There is no effort to have to fit in at all, mm-hmm. you know, or become a chameleon of sorts and like, you know, code switch and ch- meaning change the way I talk and the way I act to come off as a certain way, depending on the environment that I'm in, which is something I've had to do all throughout high school and then college. Yeah, no, I just, I feel so safe in this community. And that's, that's the goal, right? Is to create a safe space for adoptees to be who they are, talk about our experiences without all those other voices in our head and in our head about how we should feel. So I'm very grateful for this community. It's changed my life for the better. And it's, the reason why I'm able to maintain my relationships my bio- with my biological family. And I'm working on accepting, like accepting being adopted, you know, mm. not that I ever was angry about it. Um, I, I definitely went through those motions. I think we all do that as we come out of that fog and, you know, you, you go through a little bit of turmoil with that, but no, I'm working on acceptance um, and and knowing what that both and means for me. Yeah, um, that's so good. I'm just, I'm so happy you're getting a jump start on it because when I was 29, I was nowhere near where you are in terms of knowing, hey, let me take advantage of some resources here. And I feel like you've done so much in a short period of time. And, and I think, well, you said it. I mean, aren't we glad Angela wrote her book, like, I think it's touching so many lives in in a really positive way. And so what was maybe one of the biggest things you got takeaways from her book? I think that, um, and I I think she said this in there, like adoptees are not a monolith. Everyone has different experiences. There are adoptees out there who are totally happy and secure in their adoptive families and have no desire to you know, find their biological families, right? And then you have people who have been in very traumatic experiences, people who cut off their adoptive families for reasons, you know, because they can't have these conversations openly. And I think we're all, as adoptees, we're often put into a box of these grateful little children. We're always seen as these children, right? Right. And when we become adults and we're trying to figure out our identity and our purpose, it can be challenging to do that when you don't know who you are, because a lot of who we are are from my biological family, right? 
So I just think that's just that's just really important. And I, I love that Angela's book touches on so many different stories and to disrupt that narrative of adoptees should be grateful and all adoption is happy and perfect. She just says it so beautifully. You have to read the book, of course, right? But And I, I actually told my parents to read that book as well. They're on the search for that. Uh, their local bookstores. So I'm sharing it with as many people as possible because it puts into words for us. Angela puts into words in that book what we cannot explain ourselves. Right. She puts words to it. No, I I loved it so much. So I listened to it and I'm reading it at the same time. So Oh, that's so cool. She narrates the book herself. And so that's really, really fun. Yes, that's great. Well, I want to honor your time. And so is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Um, not off the top of my head. Just I'm, I'm just so grateful, Jennifer, that you have this space with so many stories. Um, and again, so many different experiences from adoptees. There's definitely not enough. There's still not enough out there from the adoptee point of view. And I'm just so grateful to now be a part of that community where people can hopefully be inspired or at least feel less alone um, by hearing my perspective um, and, and my experiences. So thank you. Yes, I'm so happy I met you, Alicia. I'm just thrilled that we got to fellowship. Like I, I feel like that was so, so special and and I couldn't have, like, I couldn't have imagined how lovely that whole day would be. Like, I, I envisioned it being very nice, but it far yeah. exceeded my every expectation from meeting other adoptees and learning that Angela is, is just truly a sweetheart of a person. Yeah, it was just really good. And I look forward to staying in communication with you since we're both, I mean, we're both right here in Tennessee. So absolutely, and I will be back out to Nashville. I, you know, I told you I love coming out to Nashville. And so being a few hours away, I am so excited to meet another person in this community. And I look forward to nurturing our friendship. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you again for saying yes to this conversation. I don't think it is an easy task I think it's emotional labor each and every time we share a part of our journey. Uh, so I don't take it lightly um, when someone says yes. So thank you again. Of course, of course. And I look forward to sharing this episode with all my friends and family. <laughs> when I listen to Alicia talk about her journey, she seems to have a level of acceptance of the good, the bad, and the ugly at an early age. I sense that for her, it all counts as the truth about her story that she will continue to process over time. I get a clearer picture through her words of how short and sporadic visits with biological family members can produce an awkwardness, though she received some mirroring. Though reunion was possible for her early in life, the management of it wasn't the best. I can appreciate knowing that attending an adoptee lounge and regular therapy sessions helped Alicia realize she was not alone with her internalized feelings 
as a person of color in a predominantly white environment. I'm glad we got to chat a bit about the saviorism narrative. It can be hurtful for people to suggest that an adoptee needed to be saved from their first parents. We share DNA with our original family. They never stop being a part of who we are. Thank you, Alicia, for having this conversation and trusting me with your story. I believe that being connected to the community has enriched your life and inspired you to learn more. As other adoptees pour into your life and you into theirs, a feeling of belonging will continue to grow. Who knew that as we each parked our cars to attend an event one sunny afternoon in Nashville, you and I were on the path to the start of a brand new relationship with one another. I want to thank every guest for saying yes to a conversation with me, every participant, especially in the early days, and the audience for listening to some of the most extraordinary people I've had the pleasure of meeting. This endeavor has positively exceeded my every expectation, and it wouldn't have been possible without your gifts and time. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.